Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be talking about the 1983 sci-fi fantasy adventure, Krull. And while I'm sure we've done a movie that fits into this category before, one of the main things that stuck out to me about Krull, at least as a film project, is that it has the overwhelming aroma of a troubled big-budget production. This is a movie that really excels in many domains, especially domains where money can make a lot of difference in, in a production, but also has major issues. This movie is a very mixed bag. Some elements are so genuinely wonderful in more or less the way they're intended to be. Some are kind of dull, maybe even boring sometimes. Others are extremely unintentionally funny. Uh, and on top of that, it's called Krull. You really cannot beat the, the phonetics of the name. And it all comes together into a preposterous, beautiful, disorganized explosion at the Star Wars factory kind of movie. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a lot of wonderful weirdness in this one. It's going to be fun to discuss. Uh, one note about the title. Uh, I don't know about everyone else out there, but I've seen Crawl multiple times over the years, and I frequently find myself having that moment in between viewings 
where I wonder, well, wait, what was Kroll? Was, and then I have to remind myself, oh, Kroll is the planet, the, the planet, planet with two suns. Because other times I'll be like, was, is the monster named Kroll? The monster on the poster is the magical weapon, the Kroll? Is Kroll that guy with the scruffy beard that's the hero? No, no, it's, it's the planet. It's like if you titled any movie that takes place on Earth, Earth. So instead of Cool Hand <laughs> Luke, it's just Earth. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I always think Kroll is the monster. Because <laughs> it looks like the correct name for like the fish face, uh, you know, critter that's that's keeping the princess hostage. Yeah, it would work. It would be like, and in days of yore, the crawl came to our world. But no, yes. it's uh, it's the beast, and the beast is in the black fortress, and the weapon is the glaive, and uh, our hero is. Um, clown right it's not clown, clown but a, a colwin colwin but it always, it always looks on on the screen Ooh. and in text like it's it's spelled almost like clown this movie has such an ineffective hero every time the hero is talking we when rachel and i were watching it, it was, we, we just sort of started making sounds you know like murp, murp, murp. <laughs> i don't know i i i would i would slightly disagree on on some of his heroic moments but but we'll get oh, to okay those. No, that's fair enough. If you're a clown fan, I I, I, won't, I won't spoil your fun. <laughs> uh, but okay, so so I mentioned earlier, it's kind of an explosion at the Star Wars factory. I think uh, to reference a review that I was reading, a contemporaneous review from uh, published in Variety in 1982, you could also call it an explosion simultaneously at the Star Wars factory and the Excalibur factory, because yeah. this review said... Quote, although inoffensively designed only to please the senses and appeal to one's whimsical sense of adventure, Kroll nevertheless comes off as a blatantly derivative hodgepodge of Excalibur meets Star Wars. Lavishly mounted at a reported cost of $27 million, a collection of action set pieces never gels into an absorbing narrative. And it's funny because... I, there's not really anything in that paragraph I can disagree with, even though I love Kroll. Yeah, like this is this is correct, but it also is a very fun movie and one that I've seen many times over the years. So yeah, I keep coming back to it. Uh, something works in this, and it's become a cult classic for this reason. Yeah. So the Variety Review, like many others at the time, makes note of the enormous budget. This was $27 million in, you know, 1982, 83 dollars. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is one of the curious things about Krull. This is not the Brain Eaters. We're not watching a, a Roger Corman production made on the cheap. So I, I don't think any failures of the film can be chalked up to lack of resources uh, or lack of ability to realize the director's vision or something. This is a luxuriously realized, almost one wants to say gilded film mm -hmm. with gorgeous location shots. You know, they've got all those uh, scenes set with like the jagged peaks of the Italian mountains. Just beautiful, uh, wonderful cavernous indoor sets, including, you know, my favorite, the thing that has a place in my heart, built indoor sets of forests, misty, mm -hmm. magical, fake forests. Yeah, these are great. Uh, in fact, I'm I'm less into the movie when they're actually outdoors, but when they're <laughs> indoors and they're on like an, an obvious uh, but extremely well-executed indoor swamp or indoor forest or whatever the case uh, may be, I'm all in. Yeah, so you got all that jolly weird set pieces, uh, costumes, characters, and yet I, I do think I have to agree with, with the review that Krull does not really work as a story. It's almost as if the main characters and their motivation are kind of like 
placeholders that somebody put in an early draft of a script to kind of build a world around, but then they never came back and and replaced them and filled in the drama. Uh, Some occasional exceptions emerge, like... I can think of a couple of really nice dialogue driven scenes here and there. Like one is a scene where the hero colon persuades some rowdy bandits to join his quest. For some reason, Mm -hmm. suddenly I think the writing's a lot better in that scene. Yes. I think this was the first, my first viewing of crawl that, well, first of all, this was my first viewing of crawl that was completely solo in the past. I've always watched this with, with at least one other person, if not a group of people, and there's a lot of talking over it and all. So this was the first time I really got to appreciate the sequence in question, which has a, a number of terrific act- actors we'll get to in a minute, and just has some nice back-and-forth dialogue. And I'm like, yeah, this is, this is a solid scene. I, I like everything about this. Uh, but meanwhile, some of the other scenes, just like the kind of exposition of the quest scenes are... <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, like, I love them, but they... They they do not have a really believable element of human drama or character. I think I saw a, a user review somewhere. This might have been on Letterboxd, where someone was like, "Yeah, this is this movie. The plot is a a first time Dungeon Masters campaign." Yes, um, and and I can yeah, I think that's a fair comment. You know, because you get that various feeling of okay, these characters now meet these characters. These characters send the characters here. Now they have to go here, and then eventually they're going to face the big bad. And uh, yeah, yeah, it has a it has a simple structure like that. And it almost feels like, yeah, of course I'm not going to describe the characters. That's for the players to do. Uh-huh. <laughs> so that's why some of the major characters are kind of empty vessels in some respects. Yeah. 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 I, I think some of the semantic content of this film is just a skeleton upon which to drape the meat of the movie. And the meat is a buffet of delicious sets and set pieces, mountains, hillsides, swamps, uh, built indoor forests. The meat, of course, is the beast. The meat mm-hmm. is Alan Armstrong. Yes. And most of all, I would say the meat is the glaive. How can you not love the glaive? Because we, we really cannot discuss Krull any further without devoting a serious explainer to the glaive. Once you see Krull, every time you close your eyes, you'll see the glaive. The glaive is just part of you now. It is like a golden uh, five-fingered starfish with knives jutting out of each arm. And it is referred to with such solemnity. It's it's just wonderful. Yeah, the glaive is, is, is awesome. The glaive is kind of... I, I see about four different elements coming into play here. Uh, it's it's uh, it's pretty much directly stated that the glaive is like a an important sacred symbol that is now in physical weapon form. Uh, mm-hmm. It is there. There's a little bit of uh, sort of Eastern um, design to it as well. It's reminiscent of uh, of uh, the the shuriken uh, that are attributed to uh, to Japanese martial arts for the most part. There's also a little bit of. Uh, of South Asian flair to it. It reminds one of the chakram weapon, a spinning blade weapon. I looked it up on Etsy and there are sellers who uh, appear to have created glaive fidget spinners, which is just perfect. That's great. Now, of course, it's also a magical weapon. And in this movie, anything magical might also be possibly technological. So it also reminds me a lot of the flying silver balls of death from the Phantasm movies in the ah, sense yes. that it doesn't really have to behave in a way that makes sense from a, like a physics or aerodynamics uh, point of view. No, it's like a flying starfish circular saw that you control with telekinesis. Right. <laughs> I'm still thinking about that comment you cited that it's a, a first-time Dungeon Masters campaign. That is so perfect. 
because I, I would say one of the main reasons for that is that the connections from set piece to set piece are very flimsy. It's just always like, well, we have to go here now. And, and that gets you to the next scene that you wanted to show. Uh, but could, could you explain why they were going from one thing to another? It's, <laughs> I, I think it's rare that you could. Credit where credit's due, the exact uh, one-sentence review for this from Letterboxd, from someone uh, by, with the username Cinema Void, writes, It's like watching a first-time DM test-running a campaign of a level two party searching for a plus-five fidget spinner to fight a space goblin. So, oh, fidget spinner, there you go. Yeah, yeah, a bit harsh, but fair. They only gave it one and a half stars. I, uh, I, I, would, give it, I would give it five glaives. Five glaives, easy. You would sacrifice all five of your fingers in the process of giving it five glaives. <laughs> all right. Well, let's get to the elevator pitch here. I, w- I would just give it a brief one. I would say it's dungeons and lasers. That, that's, a, that's a great tagline. I, Rob, I feel like I have been, at least lately, forgetting that the elevator pitch is actually supposed to be a straightforward description of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> I so I, I want it to be. Yeah, okay. I, I've forgotten that lately. And so this time I remembered that I was like, oh, wait, okay, so let me try to do that just so you understand what we're talking about. <laughs> um, so like an evil mountain arrives from space and it settles down on the world of Krull. Krull, again, is the name of the planet. And from this evil space mountain pour forth the slayers who are laser blasting shock troops who terrorize the peaceful villages of this magical planet. In response, two kingdoms of Krull plan to unite by joining uh, by joining in marriage the heirs to their thrones, and these are Prince Colwyn and Princess Lissa. But before they can they can get all their uh, act together, Princess Lissa is kidnapped by the Beast, the vile ruler of the Space Mountain. Can Colwyn save the princess? Probably. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> he has a really good shot at pulling that off. <laughs> all right, well, let's go ahead and listen to some trailer audio here. On a distant planet, a great kingdom was ravaged by beings who came from the future to conquer the universe. Now, the only survivors follow a doubtful seer and a throneless king. They will hold her in the Black Fortress must have help at the end of an impossible journey they must fight an invincible enemy here's the knowledge you seek i shall be your king columbia pictures presents a world apart from anything you have seen before crawl See, sounds pretty delightful. It sounds like a, a big budget '80s swashbuckling fantasy sci-fi adventure with a James Horner score. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As we'll discuss, this is a James Horner uh, score for sure. So it's uh, it's it's not my favorite score in the world. It's not my favorite James Horner score, but it's pretty good. It's pretty solid. It does everything it needs to do. It's not my favorite either, but it has that that majesty, all the kind of like fluttering brass of the mm-hmm. orchestra always kind of uh, every other scene sounds like a coronation hymn. Yes. 
All right. When it comes to availability for this film, well, it's widely available. Uh, I think we both watched it on HBO Max, so it's available there, at least for now, until they take it down. Uh, they seem to be changing things around a lot over there. But, uh, but as of right now, they still have a lot of good films in the, in the collection. Uh, Krull has also been released in various Blu-rays, DVD, VHS, of course, and special editions over the years. There's even a VHS-style Blu-ray that came out that really captures the original awesomeness of the VHS tape, which I fondly remember seeing on the shelves at VHS rental stores when I was a kid, because it ultimately looks... It looks super scary. I think I was a little afraid of this VHS box because you see our heroes in the foreground and in the background, they've merged the beast and the black fortress together. And it's just absolutely horrifying. He's staring right into my soul with his blood red eyes. Yeah, the mountain is the beast's face. That does not happen in the movie. But I also like, is, is this a real picture of the VHS box? Is that tagline right? Um, I think so. I think this is an accurate uh, recreation of the VHS box. Okay, well then, I, I just have to share. It says, journey into a mystical time where a horrible beast is the ruler. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like somebody could have put some more effort into that. Yeah, maybe so. <laughs> Now, uh, coming back to what we've been talking about with the uh, the basic plot of Kroll versus the this the the overall visual style of it, I think that's ultimately where Kroll excels uh, via its sets, via its costumes. Uh, by all accounts, the genesis of this film was it was a studio desire for a big fantasy film. And I mm -hmm. think originally it was going to be a lot more uh, traditional in that the Beast wasn't going to be a space titan. He was going to be a dragon. But, uh, but they, they changed over time. And clearly folks were brought in to just really breathe a great deal of visual life into this piece. Uh, it's almost like they gave some extremely talented people a coloring book or a paint by numbers sort of a thing. And they're like, this is the movie we're making. Um, just do, do do what you can with it. And mm. boy, did they ever like every little corner of the coloring book is just colored in with pigments you wouldn't expect or didn't expect or didn't know existed. Uh, and it makes it delightful. Like some of the choices they make, it's like, for instance, it's not an earth, like merely an earth, like planet. No, it's a planet with two suns. It's not a dragon. It's a space Titan. It doesn't live in a, just a cavern or a castle. It lives in a space mountain that came from down from the heavens. Uh, there's not a magic sword. There's a magic, glaive and yeah everything has this wonderful weird sheen to it and they're fabulous weird details that are not explained at all and that's something i love in a film like this i agree it's very much a, a genre mashup is this sci-fi or is this fantasy it, it doesn't it doesn't commit either way it's just it's just pulling in whatever seems cool in in any given scene now we were also enjoying the um, the detail that there was a video game adaptation of Crawl. It oh, was yeah. available in the arcades and on a home Atari system. So first of all, I think this is a pretty good looking game given mm -hmm. its context. But also th the main thing I love about it is the sound effects. It has these chip generated sound effects that are just oh, uh, th there's a sound that it makes when your little Colwyn sprite picks up an item, like when it grabs mm -hmm. a piece of the glaive. It's so good. I wonder if we could even sample that sound effect. Can't you just imagine that that sound playing anytime you like pick up a dish to put it in the dishwasher? Yeah, it's so perfectly muddy and glitchy and fun. 
Um, I have to say, too, looking at not, not merely the arcade cabinet for this, which, of course, many of these arcade cabinets look terrific, but just looking at stills from the arcade game, at least, I was impressed by how much it actually looked like uh, the the uh, the film it was based on like i could look at the details and be like oh those are the slayers okay that's the beast running around that's clearly the glaive being thrown about so um yeah unlike i, I can think of other examples where you look at at screenshots from these older games and you're like really that's supposed to be et that's indiana jones i don't know <laughs> i'm gonna say in the poster for the game colwyn looks right that the artist successfully rendered this guy uh but princess lissa here they gave her a spherical haircut yeah, and she has like some really deep um, eyeshadow. I don't remember if she ever ended up looking like this in the movie, but she looks I like she has so. decided to wed the beast. Like she looks like the the princess uh, in peril in in uh, in the legend after she has decided that she will uh, marry, or she's been sort of ensorcelled into dancing around with the um, the villain in that. Was he also called the Beast? I can't remember what his name was. Um. Is he just called evil or something? Darkness, I think. Yes, darkness. darkness yeah. Yes, Tim Curry. Tim Curry and about a thousand pounds of <laughs> latex and, <laughs> and so forth. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the, uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting. Uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to AstaproAllergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O Allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. 
I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right, let's do those connections. Yeah, we have quite, we have quite a selection of uh, talented individuals involved here. Uh, I, th- I think I can safely say, for none of them was this their finest work. Well... For a couple of them, this might have been their their biggest <laughs> film. But for the most part, we have several individuals who had done greater things before would go on to greater things. Uh, at the top here, we have the director, Peter Yates, who lived 1929 through 2011, British TV and film director, probably I think probably best known for 1968's Bullet, starring Steve McQueen, Jacqueline Bissett, and Robert Vaughn, featuring one of, if not the best car chases ever committed to film. I actually have not seen Bullet. I know it's famous for for the car chase. Uh, but also, I did not realize Robert Vaughn was in it, who yeah. was in Battle Beyond the Stars. Uh, yeah. we, we talked extensively about Robert Vaughn's career as a guy in lawyer commercials. Yeah, he has a pretty prominent role in Bullet, as I recall. Uh, it's been a long time since I've seen it, but um, but it's a classic. Yates also directed 1977's The Deep, based on the novel of the same name about double shipwrecks and barracudas from Peter Benchley, and that starred, also starred um, um, Jacqueline Bissett, Nick Nolte, Robert Shaw, and Louis Gossett Jr. I've always wanted to see that one, but I haven't. Yeah, it looks very, uh, it's, it's very wet, very wet-looking yeah. film. Um, I, and, and I heard, what it's got a, a plus, it's like they're going for one shipwreck, but there's another shipwreck underneath it. Like they're going for the heroin shipwreck, but that is on top, it turns out on top of like a, a Spanish galleon or something that has a bunch of gold mm. in it. And then I think they're barracudas, but again, I haven't seen it or read it myself. <laughs> Not sharks, barracudas this time. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, Yates also directed 1992's The Year of the Comet, 1983's The Dresser, starring Albert Finney, two-time Academy Award nominee for The Dresser, and also for 1979's Breaking Away. 
So you have a talented director here helming this thing, though I think if you look at his other films, like this is the only one that's really kind of a big budget genre piece. So I think he was mm-hmm. branching out and trying something new here. Yeah, I, I read somewhere that he he sort of looked at this as as an amusing challenge. Like mm-hmm. that he, this is not somebody who's otherwise going to be making fantasy films. He's like, well, I wonder if I could do it. Yeah. Now the writer on this, or at least the the writer, I don't recall the, the the history on the screenplay exactly, but our final credited writer who gets all the credit is uh, Stanford Sherman. Dates unknown on Stanford here, but he's a screenwriter who wrote for such shows as uh, TV shows as The Man from Uncle and the six, 1960s Batman series, multiple episodes mm. of that. His film screenplays include Kroll, The Man Who Wasn't There, which is a Steve Gutenberg Invisible Man movie, and 1984's The Ice Pirates. Oh, okay. So The Man Who Wasn't There, not the Coen Brothers movie. Right, right. This is a Steve Gutenberg Invisible Man movie. I'm, I believe it is a comedy. Uh, but, you know, all, all the best to the Goot, but uh, I, I'm not in a big hurry to watch this movie. Oh, but you mentioned Ice Pirates. That's something people have told us to cover on Weird House. Yeah, I'd have to. I, I only have vague memories of watching Ice Pirates. I can't remember how inappropriate it is. So <laughs> that's one of those that will require uh, a review first. Okay. All right, let's get into the wonderful cast for this film. Starting, though, with the star uh, playing Colin, uh, which again, it's really hard not to say clown uh, reading this name, but played by Ken Marshall who was born 1950, an American Juilliard-trained actor, active from 1979 through 2003. He may also be familiar to some of our listeners as Lieutenant Commander Michael Eddington on Deep Space Nine. I'm a little foggy on these episodes, but I think he's like a traitor to the Federation who ends up joining up with the, uh, what is that, ragtag group of civilizations that had like the, uh, the shape changer, the changeling species mm. in it, and some other creatures. Oh, Okay. He also played Marco Polo in a 1983 miniseries and also appeared in the 1988 movie Feds. Um, I have to say, like, I, I agree he's not maybe the, the best in this, but I feel like in those scenes that have good, well-written dialogue, and he's also surrounded by often an incredible group of, of more talented, more experienced actors— I found that I I bought his charismatic, uh, you know, r- r- you know, raising everybody up, getting everybody united, uh, his little speeches and so forth. Uh, I bought into that. So uh, at least some of the time, I find that he works pretty well on screen. Oh sure, I mean he. I mean I was making a little bit of fun, but also he <laughs> is fun in the role. Like I I would not replace Ken Marshall here. Right. <laughs> All right. His uh, his love interest, of course, is uh, Princess uh, Lisa. Is it Lisa? Lissa, I think. Lissa, L-Y-S-S-A, played by Lissette Anthony, British actor known for such titles as 1995's Dracula, Dead and Loving It, 1992's Husbands and Wives, and the 1991 reboot of Dark Shadows. She also appears in the Anton Corbin music video for the solid Depeche Mode song, I Feel For You. Uh, I, I don't really remember this music video, but it's a solid track. It's not one of the Depeche Mode tracks that annoys me. Uh, she also did an episode of Tales from the Crypt, Forever Ambergris. This is a, an episode that had Roger Daltrey and Steve Buscemi in it. And uh, yeah, she's a kidnapped princess in this movie. So her performance hits all the expected notes for that kind of a role. Uh, and I also was reading that her voice was apparently dubbed in the final cut. So we have to take that into account. I was noticing that in nearly every scene, there's a 
bit of a twinkle in her eye. Like she's mm-hmm. almost on the edge of playing it for comedy. Uh, <laughs> I sense an awareness of the, the campiness of the movie that a little bit comes through on the screen. Like, uh, I mean this not in an insulting way. She plays the role almost as if she's playing kind of like a, a princess in an SNL sketch. Yeah, yeah. I think it's, it is the right tone for this because like you say, it, it, it bordering on comedy without actually venturing into that territory, without actually subverting the, uh, the, the film or the role uh, to any extent. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I can see that twinkle. All right. Well, you can't have a story like this without a, a wizard in it. And actually, we have multiple wizards in this film, but we have at least one who really knows what he's doing. I bet you also didn't think you'd get a Dune crossover in Krull. Oh, yeah. We got at least a couple of them here. This is the character, and ooh, I, I, I'm, I'm blanking on how we pronounce this one. It's Y-N-Y-R. So, Yinier? Yinier, I think. Yinier, yeah. Yinier. Yinier, yes, a, a kind of wizard and seer uh, and just general wise dude. He's putting the party together. He's the one who shows up after stuff goes, goes poorly and says, all right, the, we, need to, we need to solve this beast problem. Uh, played by the wonderful Freddie Jones, who lived 1927 through 2019. And yeah, he's a real treat in this. He's got a, he's got a strong screen presence. He's one of, I think, the central grounding performances in the film. Uh, every scene he's in, he can he breathes a sort of seriousness and life into it. Uh, the Dune crossover, of course, is that he played uh, Thufir Hawat in David Lynch's 1984 adaptation of Dune. He was also in Lynch's 1980 film The Elephant Man. He did, he did a lot of TV work. He also had memorable roles in such films as 85's Young Sherlock Holmes, 1984's Firestarter, the 1982 Clint Eastwood uh, fighter jet, SR-71 movie Firefox, and 1979's Zulu Dawn. What would you call his facial hairstyle in this, in, in Krull? <laughs> I don't know what the exact name for this. It's like a mustache that goes down and becomes two beardlets on either side. And uh-huh. the great thing, I included this for you, Joe, is if you put his character in Krull next to his character in Dune, it basically looks like his beard pieces were, were subsequently removed after the filming of Krull and pasted on his eyebrows for yes. the character in Dune. It's just a face uh, bristle inversion. Yeah, I, I was thinking of the two parts of his beard as lobes. Like his beard yeah. has two two lobes, like the lobes of a, of a brain. And uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I I can't think of anywhere else I've seen this. Anyway, he's he's great. Like I say, anytime he's on screen, he's got a very uh, you know loud uh, presence that I think works really well really fills up those big, huge sets uh, in a way that a lot of performances don't. And this character also has a love interest of sorts, as we'll discuss, The Widow of the Web, played by Francesca Annis. Uh, born 1945, English actor known for her roles as Lady Jessica in David Lynch's Dune from 1984. Mm. So there's our other Dune connection. She was uh, Lily in the 1978 miniseries of the same name. She was Lady Macbeth in that pretty great 1971 adaptation starring John Finch. Uh, that was, was long one of my favorite uh, Macbeth adaptations. And mm. anyway, she's been very active in film, TV, and theater over the years and was active as recently as 2020. She plays a nice tragic role in this. Mm-hmm. But you know what else you didn't think you were going to get in Crawl is the Green Bay's vampire. Yeah, I had, for the most part, I forgot he was in this. I think all subsequent viewings of Crawl came before I really 
appreciated the awesomeness of Alan Armstrong, who plays a a bandit, um, an axe-wielding bandit ruler who answers to no man and wears a spiked choker around his neck so that nobody can strangle him. Um, this is the yeah, 37-year-old Alan Armstrong, uh, born 1946. Uh, we've talked about him here before on the show. He was, of course, in the 1992 Split Second. But we mainly discussed him in our episode on the brilliant 1985 snooker musical Billy the Kid and the Green Bay's Vampire. I have to point out that the Wikipedia page for Krull describes mm-hmm. his character in Krull, uh, Torquil, as, quote, a man who favors an axe and is a leader of a group of bandits. You know you've really made an impression when the first thing they say about you is that you favor an axe. <laughs> he does always have a super shiny axe on him, but uh, this is a great role. This is especially for Alan Armstrong, who uh, who has you know is a great character actor. Doesn't mm-hmm. always have a like a really central staying role in a picture, uh, but in this he has a lot of screen time. He's an interesting character that actually has probably has more of a, a character arc than some of the other characters in the, the the film like he goes through changes he's uh there's this sort of uh, oh am i uh, you know what are we in this for as bandits do we just want to steal emeralds and uh, make off do we care about the future of the world of crawl uh so really i think torquil here has there's a lot more going on with him compared to some of the other characters Torquil's great. Alan Armstrong, he just has like a uh, unwashed charm for days. Absolutely yeah. Uh, brilliant. Yeah, uh, I, this is another one of the performances that I think really cements uh, the picture. You know what else I, I actually thought was a pretty good uh, performance is the comic relief character, Ergo. Yeah, Ergo, the the wizard, the, he seems to mainly specialize in transmutation spells. That's pretty much all we see him doing. Um trying to turn people into animals and failing, trying to turn himself into the right animal and failing, finally pulling through in the end. But Mm. yeah, played by David Batley, who lived 1935 through 2003. And he has that... He has that sort of Eric Idle, Nigel Planner manner and physicality to him that works mm-hmm. really well for a, a comedic performance and a comedic presence. And he mostly did comedic roles on stage and screen. As soon as he showed up, Rachel was like, he's in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Yeah, yeah. He plays what a character named Mr. Turkentine. I haven't seen this Willy Wonka in a bit, so I don't recall exactly how he factors into the, the stories of the doomed children. Uh, Rachel thought he was a teacher in a school. Ah, that would make sense. So I guess that would be the beginning of the movie. I'm not sure. Yeah, outside of those two big films, uh, those are the two big films, I think, for this guy. He mostly did TV, and especially after Crawl, it was mostly television. You may already get the sense that uh, we're meeting a lot of characters in this movie, but it just <laughs> keeps going, right? Yeah, because we also have a Cyclops, a memorable cinematic Cyclops, played by Bernard Breslau, Lived, who lived 1934 through 1993, a towering six foot seven British actor uh, in this playing a cursed Cyclops with second sight uh, and a weird t- uh, trident weapon. Uh, this actor, I'd, I've seen him in at least one other thing. He has a really fun uh, goon role in the delicious 1969, I think it's a Hammer production, a groovy space movie called Moon Zero Two. And he mm. was also also had roles in the Carry On movies in Britain and also 1977's Jabberwocky. I have to say that 
I, I think, unfortunately, the Cyclops in this movie is not a great creature design, at least not in the way they intended. But I loved every time the Cyclops showed up because he, he looked so amazingly humorous. Like they make the Cyclops very placid and awkward and stiff in his movements. And I was wondering, why is he like that? Why is he so placid and awkward? And then I realized it's because, well, he's not really getting to act with much of his real face and he can't see, he like can't see in his costume. So his movements are necessarily very constricted and the effect of all this put together oddly made me keep thinking of him as Trumpy and pod people. Yeah, this brings me back to a discussion we had in our episode on Metal Storm, the destruction of Jared Sin, because that movie, of course, has some Cyclops characters in it. And they created the Cyclops effect by deciding, okay, we're going to have like a mutation type thing going on where one eye of the actor is obscured and only one eye of the face is in use, which gives it a unique look, but also allows the actor to see and to act through their own facial expressions to a degree that Bernard here was not permitted to do. So yeah, you put somebody in what I think is still ultimately a pretty good Cyclops costume, but there are just severe limitations by putting that effect in place on someone. If you watch it again with this in mind that like the actor couldn't see, it makes a lot more sense when you see the way he moves, like that it, it always looks so funny the way he kind of like, is very constrained in the way he kind of rotates his body in order to do things. And I think it's because he's just, he's trying to be careful not to run into or trip over things. Yeah. I mean, it's, the, it's one of the limitations of the Cyclops design. This is why to this day, one of the best and most memorable, if not the best Cyclops effect is Ray Harryhausen's uh, uh, stop motion Cyclops creature. And I, I, I can't even remember which film it's from, but I think if, if you're listening to this, you probably can picture it in your mind. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's let's get into to some of the other actors here. Uh, this is a lesser bandit uh, character in the film that still has kind of a story arc to him, a character arc to him. And this is Keegan, played by Liam Neeson. Oh boy, Liam Neeson! Is, you know, you can you can see his star power shining through, even though this is a small role. Mm-hmm. He plays a bandit who. The main thing we know about him is that he's a horrible two-timer who has like nine <laughs> different wives who don't know about each other. That's right. Yeah, there's not much to go on here. And yet, yeah, he's basically, you know, physically he's a big guy. So he's playing this this kind of hulking brood of a, of a bandit. But he's got a twinkle in his eye. And yeah, the, the, the Neeson magic is able to, to shine through a bit here, even though it's a bit part. And I don't, I don't imagine I need to say any more about, about Liam Neeson. You know Liam Neeson, <laughs> uh, now mostly known as in his post-taken career as, a, as an older action star. But, uh, and then he had the you know, a, a whole series of films there, where, you know, Schindler's List. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, but even before Schindler's List, was, he was in uh, like two movies that I've always loved. He was in the 1986 uh, film The Mission. Uh, not a huge part in that, but 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 memorable. And of course, he's the lead in 1990's Dark Man, which was a tremendously fun film at the time. In, even in Krull, he has a particular set of skills, but those <laughs> skills are favoring an axe and cheating on his wives. <laughs> yes, that's true. All right, let's get into some of these other characters in the party. This enormous party. I mean, really, this is just wear any dungeon master out. Some of these have to be uh, player, yeah. uh, non-player characters. How but, many characters are we at now? We're not even doing all of them. We're just <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, we, we got to have uh, at some point. They're like, uh, um, how are we going to figure out where the fortress is because it teleports every day? Well, we need a seer, right? Yeah, got to have yep. a seer. 
So that that means they go to a seer by the name of Seer, I believe, or he's credited as such. And this is played by John Welsh, who lived 1914 through 1985. Longtime British TV actor who also appeared in such films as 1970s Cromwell, 1970s The Man Who Haunted Himself, and um, a very small part in Charles B. Pierce's 1978 Viking movie, The Norseman. Whoa. Yeah, <laughs> I haven't seen that one yet. But Charles B. Pierce, of course, gave us the, the Boggy Creek movies and a Viking saga. G- gave us the, as a gift. Yes, yes. He, he gave, these are cinematic gifts that he bestowed upon the world. Wasn't um, Boggy Creek 2 one of like the, I don't know, like second or third movies we did on, on Weird House? Yeah, I think it was. It was pretty, pretty early on. Uh, but that, that, was a, that was a fun one. That one starred Charles B. Pierce. Remember that, that that's that's a Charles B. Pierce tour de force. Written, directed, and starring. Can't beat that trio. <laughs> All right, we have another bandit here. We have Run, played by the great Robbie Coltrane, born nineteen fifty. Robbie Coltrane, I know him. Yeah, yeah, probably best known for his role as Hagrid in the Harry Potter movies. We, of course, also had a memorable run in the James Bond franchise. In Britain, mm-hmm. he was on TV's Cracker. Other roles include parts in Van Helsing, From Hell, Ooh. Henry V, and a very bit role, you know, I was surprised to see this, in 1980's Flash Gordon. He is man at airfield in that, in that so I, I don't think that is a major role. In this movie, he has a really funny moment when he uh, he gets killed while they're assaulting the fortress, the beast's fortress at the end. And after he gets shot by the slayers, everybody has to run over to him so they can listen to him give a death monologue. But then it's just like, the journey was worth it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think I'd read that his voice was apparently dubbed in the final cut of this movie as well. Oh, man, what a mess. All right, so the cast also, there, there are other folks involved in this. I don't think we even hit everybody in the party, but moving on to some of the behind-the-scenes stuff, we, we already mentioned James Horner, who lived 53 through 2015, a composer known for scores such as Battle Beyond the Stars, but also Aliens, Star Trek to the Wrath of Khan, Willow, Field of Dreams, many more. I think Avatar was one of his final, if not his final score. And his 1986 score to The Name of the Rose uh, remains one of my favorites. Certainly one of my favorites, my favorite James Horner uh, score, but also just one of my favorite scores in general. I feel like he really uh, pulled that one off. Uh, This one, as we've said, is more of a traditional 80s fantasy fanfare adventure score. All right, looking to some more behind-the-scenes stuff here. Uh, The director of photography was Peter Szoszewski, born in 1941, Polish-born cinematographer who is well-known for his work with David Cronenberg on such films as Dead Ringers and Naked Lunch, but also various other Cronenberg films. He also worked on the Rocky Horror Picture Show, Mars Attacks, and a little picture by the name of The Empire Strikes Back. Hmm. Um, Production designer on this was uh, Stephen Grimes, 1927 through 1988, award-winning production designer known for Out of Africa and Never Say Never Again um, from 85 and 83, respectively, among many others. And then I also noticed that an art direction credit goes to Tony Curtis, uh, not (laughs) that Tony Curtis, but um, the production designer, art designer, Tony Curtis, who lived 37 through 2021, who did a lot of like 70s amicus horror movies and also worked on the snake movie Venom from 1981 that we previously Ah. discussed. Ah. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. 
It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. So at this point, all the playing pieces are on the table. It's time, it's time to crawl. It's time to crawl down on some crawl. All right. I know this is 
the the most overdone physics pedant thing to point out in a movie. I don't usually mention it these days, but I thought it was funny by virtue of its prominence. The very first thing that happens in this movie is a depiction of sound in outer space. <laughs> uh, so there's a vast field of stars in the void and the orchestras, you know, uh, pumping out uh, the kind of coronation overture, you know, that James Horner music with like a weird boys choir ooing and aahing. It's almost uh, kind of you can't always get what you want. <laughs> and then we see a glaive. We see this golden starfish whirling through space toward the camera and th- the glaive is so it's whirling like you know the rotor blades on a helicopter and it's making helicopter sounds like swishing sounds mm-hmm. but not only is it sound in space the sound is directly what would be a result of the little starfish finger knives swishing through the air <laughs> Uh, Now, you might say, oh, but this is a terrestrial fantasy film, but not exactly, because the next thing we see is something flying through space. The villain's fortress slash mountain is also a spaceship. Yeah, the the Black Fortress. And really, this this film comes out swinging uh, in terms of just uh, like weird stuff that's going to makes you ask a lot of questions because, yeah, here comes this this mountain and it has this structure in it. And we see more and more of this throughout the film. But I love the design of this because it, it is essentially an evil castle. It is the film's evil castle where the evil big bad lives. But it defies easy categorization beyond that because it is it is also a spaceship. It's also an asteroid. It's like it, it's geologic. It feels like it is it is formed through geology and erosion, but it also feels, especially when you get into the occupied portions of it, it feels like it was it is, was was grown, like the whole interior castle was extruded by some sort of strange space mollusk. Yeah, on the outside, a lot of the texture we see is columnar basalt, but then mm-hmm. when we go inside, a lot of the stuff looks like. Um, I don't know, that kind of like rigid mucus architecture made by the creatures in Aliens. Yeah, except, but cleaner and and, and well lit. Yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, or it, it's like a lot of times you feel like you're inside a textbook illustration of an ear canal. <laughs> That's right. Um, so the mountain from space gently settles down on the surface of this planet very slowly, and yet the surface just explodes anyway when it does. It looks like it's settling down in the sand hills of Nebraska. And uh, we better make friends with Space Mountain because it's going to be a major set piece in the movie. You're, you will see it over and over. And immediately we get some voiceover narration. So I think this is the voice of uh, Yinir? Ymir? Yes. This is, this is, this is Freddie Jones. Yinir. Yinir. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yinir starts saying, uh, we haven't met him yet, so we don't know who he is. It's just voiceover. This, it was given to me to know that many worlds have been enslaved by the beast and his army, the slayers. And this too was given to me to know that the beast would come to our world, to the world of Krull, and his black fortress would be seen in the land. The smoke of burning villages would darken the sky and the cries of the dying echo through deserted valleys. And meanwhile, we see the slayers for the first time. Um, Rob, how would you describe the Slayers? Oh boy, this is this is the the one of the things that I I think a lot about trying to figure out the Slayers because the Slayers here they have this kind of black armor that is at once it once it kind of feels like some sort of an evil suit of armor from fantasy, but it also feels kind of like a spacesuit, also kind of like an exoskeleton. They have these staffs 
which can be used as a melee weapon, but also can shoot laser beams. Like this, mm-hmm. so there, there's clearly some high technology here. They come from another world. They ride horses, though. Um, yeah. They ride horses into battle. Uh, again, they shoot laser beams. And we also come to find out that if you kill one, they emit a high-pitched squeal. They're, they crackle with red electricity. Their heads explode. A kind of like bloody space weasel comes out of their head and then burrows into the ground, and then other pieces of their body kind of self-bury as well. I have no, you have no idea, there's no explanation exactly what's going on here, but it is then, it's thoroughly magical and otherworldly and alien, and so it absolutely works. Yes, I love the Jason goes to hell thing here, where they each have it, so the head, the helmet thing explodes, the bloody alien slug tongue comes out, and then like burrows down into the ground. Mm-hmm. And the way I interpreted that, did, did you get the same thing that like what the Slayer actually is the, the tongue, it's the alien slug and that the rest of the body is just like a, like a suit that the tongue operates. It's like crying in the body. Yeah. I think that would make sense. I, yeah, it, it's, it's either that or it's, it's like a, a humanoid body that has been repurposed and armored. Cause this is the other weird thing about it. So, this introduction, again, which I'm assuming it's the the voice of Yinyir who we meet later. He's talking about, oh, the prophecy was that the beast would come. But then later we hear that, like, the beast has been here for a very long time. Long enough that the Cyclopses that we encounter, or the Cyclops we encounter, like, he has, like, a gen- his kind has a generational issue with the beast. Uh, like, he was cursed by the beast and his, uh, his people ages ago. So, like, so he's been here for a while trying to conquer the world of of crawl and he has these slayers which may or may not be entirely off world in origin or they might be some sort of a it might be a situation where they're like okay go capture us some more humanoids so we can turn them into slayers we just don't know we're left to fill in the blanks on our own which again is something i love to do in movies like this the the slayers present an enigma yes yes all of that is true um okay but i for, i got sidetracked from Yanir's uh, narration here because he's not done. He's going to talk some more. <laughs> he says, uh, but one thing I cannot know, because remember he's been telling us all the things that have been given to him to know. Mm-hmm. He says, one thing I cannot know whether the prophecy be true that a girl of ancient name shall become queen, that she shall choose a King and that together they shall rule our world and that their son shall rule the galaxy that we're getting into some Dune territory here. Yeah, I mean, some of that be true. We know that it be true because it ultimately <laughs> happens in the film. Some of this, I don't know, the whole thing about the prophecy of the child and the galaxy, yeah. uh, th- there might have been a mistranslation when he was given to know this. Uh, we don't even see them have a son. Spoiler, they, yeah. there's no son in the movie at all. They So we don't even know if the son will rule Krull, let alone a galaxy. Right. This, this is another, the scale of the saga here of the... Uh, the 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 war between the kingdoms of Kroll and the Beast. Uh, I have a lot of questions about this as well uh, because we never see a, an enormous force of slayers, and we come to know later on. It is given us to know that the Black Fortress, even though it arrived uh, via a, a descent from orbit, 
it moves around regularly by just teleporting from one place to another, never the same place mm-hmm. twice. So you never know where it's going to be. So this keeps a largely medieval civilization from mounting a proper siege against the, the Black Fortress. And it allows the Black Fortress to sort of, to essentially carry out small raids. Like you don't, they don't have that many slayers, but they have good horses apparently, and they have laser weapons. So they, mm. it seems like they can be highly effective in surprise strikes. But ultimately how, it seems like they've been here on Kroll for a long time. They haven't conquered the whole planet yet. Supposedly they're working up to it, but it seems like a tall order given what the beast has at his disposal. We, we, we have no idea like what the map looks like, what, what uh-huh. does beast territory look like versus these other kingdoms. We, again, we have to fill in all these blanks. So uh, yeah, I just have a hard time imagining like, well, what does is, what is conquered territory look like? How does he hold territory? Is it just like, I would love to know what does a, a conquered region look like? Is it people going about their normal business, but having to like, like harvest corn for the beast or build a space laser that points yeah, at, a, at a planet does, they've never heard of. Does he have beast puppet rulers that he leaves behind? And yeah. do they look like him? Do they have like the fish, the fish teeth and stuff? Yeah. Or do, does do they just absolutely destroy everybody and turn all the humans they find into slayers? There, is it a Borg situation? We have no idea. This is why we need a Kroll series. To, to take all of this and stitch together, uh, you know, a six-season story. All right. We, we got to – so in the castle, we're here in a castle with a princess now because remember mm-hmm. we heard about a girl of ancient name. She's going to become queen. And um, so we see her in a castle, and the, this castle is full of guards wearing plastic armor with glossy paint that looks kind of like mid-priced Iron Man costumes. Yes. Uh, but also with more, not total body coverage, just like the actual armor part is more kind of shoulders and then bikini. So it's almost like sexy Iron Man costume. This too, the look in the castle, of course, looks like a castle, but is also immaculate. So this also made me thinking about the possible sci-fi connections because the, the castle looks like it was 3D printed by like a colony barge or some sort of a spaceship <laughs> that visited the planet Kroll. The, tr- the traditional armor of the kingdom, uh, kingdom uh, here, they, it, yeah, it looks like some sort of sci-fi space armor, or, the, or it's the memory of sci-fi space armor reproduced for a medieval-level technology culture. So it's, it's strange to try and figure this out. Like, what, who are the people of Kroll? Did they, are they themselves aliens that came here maybe not too long before the beast arrived? What is going on here? I also have thoughts on the decor of the castle here. Because, again, this is not the evil castle from space. This is the nice castle where the princess lives. Mm-hmm. The doors here look like they have dartboards on them. Uh, <laughs> and I, I couldn't help but keep noticing this feature that are these random metal torture chairs just like sitting up against the wall in these big empty rooms where no one would ever sit. And later we, we see the chairs repeatedly. Like I don't think anybody ever sits in them, but we see when like a fight breaks out later, the chair is getting kicked over, <laughs> but okay. We got to meet characters. So we got a princess, we got a King a princess seems melancholy at first, but I think she's just waiting for her prince to arrive. Uh, she, and he's on the way. This is going to be Prince Colwyn. She's mm-hmm. going to marry him and she's very excited, but her father is weirdly disapproving, even though he has explicitly authorized this marriage, but he's making comments like, you know, he's too handsome and confident and too great a warrior. 
uh, I think the implication is like, wouldn't you rather ma- marry a nice scheming Machiavellian backstabber? Mm-hmm. Um, but their marriage is going to be some kind of political arrangement, right? Like each one has a daddy who is a king and the two daddies have agreed to join the forces of their kingdoms by marrying their kids together. Right. It's like the it's Romeo and Juliet, except it, it's about to work. It's about to actually, they're about to pull it off. And the fathers of are like, okay, all right, it's fine. You can bring peace to our family and we'll reunite. We'll unite our forces and we'll, we'll join forces against the beast and save our world. Okay, kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's also, uh, to be clear, not like a miserable uh, political marriage. Fortunately, it seems like Lissa and Colwyn are just really into each other. Right. And I wanted to highlight one thing here in the castle, which is that usually, as we were saying earlier, the sets and locations in this movie are are very beautiful. Occasionally, there's one that just looks pretty hokey. And I would single out the set where the uh, where Colwyn and his people arrive at the castle and there's like a dude, I don't know, a captain of the guard or something standing at the top of a staircase. It looks it looks very fake. It looks thrown together. Hmm. Like it doesn't look like stone. It looks like a wooden staircase that was painted over to look like stone. And, and yeah, that kind of yeah. Thing. But it looks like you could swashbuckle all over the place here, and that's the oh, and they thing. will, <laughs> they will. And so the prince and the princess have a marriage ceremony. They're surrounded by all the Iron Mans, and uh, Princess Lissa pulls fire out of a bowl of water and hands it to the prince. And this is their traditional crawl style marriage. But uh oh, the marriage is. The, the the wedding is interrupted when slayers show up. Slayers ride in, they bust down the doors of the castle, and they attack the wedding. And I would say this is a scene where the mixed bagginess of the movie really emerges, because there are some shots in this attack sequence that are very scary and effective. Like, there's a great creepy-looking scene where the slayers, with some kind of apparent anti-gravity magic, are climbing up the walls to go into the castle. Uh, But then there are other shots that are so bad, like, some of the fight choreography in this section is especially humorous, very phoned in people just kind of half heartedly jiggling swords at each other. <laughs> yeah. Now don't look too closely at that, um, that special anti-gravity technology that the slayers are using because the, uh, the, the string becomes visible, uh, at times, yeah. uh, which you can't blame it too much. This reminds me of, um, uh, I follow uh, Todd Masters on Instagram as an effects guy who's been working in effects for ages. And I remember seeing some thread uh, he had going there with some other effects guys. And they were talking about, yeah, remember the days when you could just count on some VHS grime to cover up uh, the details of an effect? You know, like a lot of these were not put together thinking you would ever view them uh, at, at the same, in the same picture quality that, you know, we're reviewing them in our homes now. Yeah. Still, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm nitpicking here. The Slayers still look nice and creepy scaling up that wall. Yes, they do. But again, I mean, if you actually like stop and try to watch any of the fights, like any of the yeah. people trading blows here, it, so, some of them, they're barely trying. Yeah, yeah. The fight choreography here is not um, amazing. There's still, there's, there's swashbuckling to be had here. There's a lot of jumping around. You get the sense of a battle, but maybe not those, the, the details and the nuance that you would associate with like a great fight scene, great sword fighting or anything. Yeah. Anyway, big effect of this whole sequence is the princess is kidnapped by the Slayers and taken back to the Black Fortress. And everybody else but Colwyn is killed. And then Colwyn's left there. He's wounded. He's lying on the staircase. He's distraught. 
everybody's dead. And Colin is then revived by Yinier, this guy, Freddie Jones here, who introduces himself. He's like, I am Yinier. And um, Colin's like, oh, the old one. And he's like, <laughs> I'm not old. <laughs> Uh, but he says, you know, you've come down from the granite mountains. So Colwyn knows who he is. This guy's a famous, I don't know, prophet or magician or wise man of some kind. He says he, he's needed now. And Colwyn starts crying about his, his father being dead. Uh, though I, unfortunately it really looks like he's laughing in the scene where he's supposed to be crying. Yeah. He's, um, yeah, it, it's it, it's hard to figure out exactly what's going on. Here. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but he gets a he gets a charge from Yenir. Yenir's like, "Stop crying! You have to go rescue the princess and defeat the beast. But first, you have to get a glaive." So here begins our adventure, and from here on out, it's just stringing together one set piece to the next. Mm-hmm. So we get a b- truly beautiful sequence where uh, Colin has to go retrieve a glaive from the top of a mountain. And I think this was shot in, uh, in mountains in Italy, but we get all these, uh, craggy, uh, craggy peaks and, and jagged mountaintops and, uh, Colin's climbing up them to get to the cave, to get to the glaive cave. But meanwhile, we're treated to all these vistas. Um, and, uh, and uh, yeah, this is a great looking sequence. Eventually, he comes up to the cave and has to stick his arm into what looks like molten lava in order to retrieve the glaive, and it's covered in mud, like caked on mud or something, and it kind of crackles off, and then underneath, the brilliance of the glaive shines through, and he's very excited. <laughs> I like that he he has to do something to get the weapon, you know, yeah. like you have to pull the weapon from the, the burning fire. It reminds me uh, in the, the, the recent film... Uh, uh, the North, the Northman. Is it the Northman or the Norseman? Uh, the Northman. Yeah. The Northman. Okay. Not the Norseman. That was the, the film we referenced earlier. And the Northman is a scene where he gets a sword and he has yes. to, at least in his own mind, uh, fight some sort of an undead wraith in order to claim it. Uh, and, uh, it, it feels better when there's a trial that has to be overcome to get the weapon as opposed to, uh, like say thrilling bloody sword where uh, our main hero, <laughs> He, he, he does have to do some swimming, but then when he gets to the skeleton's like, hey, do you want the, my armor and this sword? It's really good stuff. Let me tell you how it works. And he's like, yeah, I would love it. That's why I, I swam here. And then he takes yeah. off with it. And there's no trial to overcome. That's funny. I didn't compare that scene in Thrilling Bloody Sword to the one in The Northman, but they are kind of similar. They have, both have to like go down into a mound or some kind of cavern to get the weapon. But yeah, in The Northman, he has to fight a draugr. I guess in Conan the Barbarian, he doesn't actually fight a skeleton, but he's he's at least he has to deal with the the wild dogs or wolves that have cornered him in the crypt, and he yeah. has to accept the sword, go out and kill some dogs. So uh. at least there's that, or wolves, not dogs, they're wolves. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, here we get a moment where uh, there's some, I think, very convenient writing to restrict the amount of special effects that are going to have to happen in the movie. Mm-hmm. Because Yanir says to Cole, and he's like, hey, you can't just use the, the glaive now. You got to wait until it's time. And he's like, how will I know when it's time? And Yanir's like, well, it's when it's in the final act of the movie and you're facing the bad guy. <laughs> this is not a weapon you get to bust out for um, encounters leading up to the final fight. I think he says, you will know when it's time. Hmm. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month. Taxes and fees included. 
Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. But here we're going to recruit a bunch more characters. Uh, so we recruit Ergo the Magnificent. This is the the comic relief character who's a sort of eccentric, incompetent magician who's always referencing spells to try to change other people into things, but instead ends up changing himself into things. He uh, transforms himself into a goose in the first scene, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, goose. Uh, when the bandits show up, he he's like, I'll turn the bandits into pigs, and he turns himself into a, like a, a cute little piglet. 
Oh yeah. So we meet the bandits there. It's when our heroes, uh, having recruited ergo, by the way, sort of accidentally by way of Cyclops terror, like Ergo's like, no, 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 I'm not going with you. I'm going my own way. But then he just encounter runs into a Cyclops yeah. and then he's like, no, oh, okay. I'm with you. I'm with you now. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so uh, the characters meet Torquil. Uh, that's Alan Ar- Armstrong and the band of thieves. And it starts with the thieves trying to rob them, but then Colwyn rather cleverly and charismatically is able to make them join his cause. I think it's by saying he, he's like, well, I'm the legitimate King now, so I can have all your crimes forgiven. And he demonstrates this by using the key that he has from his father's master at arms, I think to unlock all of their manacles. Yeah. But still Alan, Alan Armstrong's character, Torquil has to, has to be convinced. Cause he's like, we're already free. We're already do what we want. Why should we come with you? Uh, and go on this death mission with you. And and yeah, uh, basically our hero rolls a natural 20 on his persuasion and mm. gives a nice speech. And they're like, finally, like other, other members of the bandit party, uh, they break first. And they're like, yeah, I think I'm with this guy. Like this is a noble mission, fighting not only for ourselves, but fighting for our children, fighting for the future of our world. We'll join up with him. And finally, Alan Armstrong's like, all right, we'll, we'll see where this goes. It's a solid huzzah all around. Yeah. So next there, I lose, again, as I said earlier, you kind of lose track of what exactly the reason for each of the next stops on the journey is, but for, they're going somewhere for some reason. I think they have to uh, meet a seer in order for him to be able to tell them where the fortress is, but they're wandering around through a forest and they have another encounter with this Cyclops we saw earlier. I think the Cyclops sort of pivots out from behind a tree and throws a spear at a slayer in order to save the life of Ergo the Magnificent. I believe that's right, yes. And Ergo's all freaked out, but we get some backstory on the Cyclops. Uh, the Cyclopses? What's the plural? Cyclopes? The, uh, the the Cyclops is part of a member of a you know a group of Cyclopses that existed long before when the Slayers came to crawl in the ancient past and uh, they, they fought then and ever since then every Cyclops has a has a death grudge against Slayers and he will attack Slayers on sight so that's why the Cyclops has been helping them yeah and they are truly cursed with second sight because they can see into the future but they see only one thing they see their death they know where it will occur they know when it will occur and if they try to deviate from their fate it will only ensure that their death is more painful uh which uh always struck me like that's one of the the details in the film that i that when i especially when i watched this when i was younger i was like oh that poor that's that's awful that's so tragic how do you think that interacts with the actual cyclops death when we see it later i was thinking that the the demise of the cyclops was very clumsy writing because there's like a scene where he's he says, I, I can't go on with you because I know I'm about to die, so I'm going to die here. And then they leave. And then he immediately just follows after them and helps them do the next thing. And then he dies. Yeah, there, it seems like there needed to be a bit more connective tissue. Like there, a moment where, he's, where he realizes, no, they really need me. And even though it's going to totally um, mess up my noble death here, I've got to go and save them. And so then, yeah, he ends up... He ends up sort of saying, he, basically, he's just kind of, suddenly he's there with them, and he, I guess he kind of holds a door open for them, and then is subsequently crushed by that door, and, and does die a horrible death. Right. So, uh, so we learn about the Cyclops, and then 
uh, on, let's see, they collect the seer and the seer also has like a, uh, a little kid friend. And so they're part of the party. Now the seer is like a, he's this blind old wizard. Um, and, uh, they're going to a place in the middle of a swamp where three trees grow together so that they can see where the, where the fortress is going to teleport to next. Oh, you have to remember the seer tries to, uh, peek in to spy on the beast's whereabouts from his own abode. Uh, but then the beast like reaches through the magic with his six fingered claw and 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 stops the seer. So he's like, no, no, we can't do it from here. We have to go from to a place where it's safe, where the the beast can't like triangulate our our location or can't uh, uh, use some sort of a counter uh, 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 offense against us. It's like a it's like a Sauron Palantir kind of thing. They yeah. have to find a place where somehow the Palantir Sauron can't see them through it. Yeah. And the place is the swamp. Now, Rob, I know you loved the swamp sequence. Do you want to describe it? Yeah, it's it's. I thought it was really effective. Every time I've, I've viewed it, it's pretty effective because we get the Slayer attack, and we, you know we were expecting Slayers to to uh, to pop up again. So there's this there's this fight. There's also a fabulous quicksand sequence. Characters get caught in mo- in wonderful cinematic quicksand, and you get the you know traditional shenanigans involving that. But then we realize all oh, those the, the beast is so clever because this was this this attack was really a distraction because then we see the the seer who i think is supposed to be blind mm-hmm. um uh, he's he's standing there he's kind of away from it he's not going to be in the middle of this combat he's he's standing off to the side and then suddenly behind him is another seer there's something that has taken on his form and then it reaches out to him and like extends its claws and stabs into him and like the actor playing the seer he's he emits this horrible cry and um and and yeah i, I find everything with this changeling as they later call it this doppelganger creature that's been sent by the beast to replace the seer it all comes off really creepy it, it, it's always creeped me out anytime i've watched it something about watching this old man suffer uh you know killed in solitude by this interloper while everyone's distracted over here with the battle in the quicksand yeah this part was creepy and then of course the the seer i think after this tries to kill colin uh the, the seer changeling yeah, yeah, there's an attempt on his life, and then I believe it's the Cyclops that skewers him with his trident, and oh, he emits this horrible screeching sound when he dies, and there's this kind of melting, imploding effect, and he also, mm. his body kind of self-buries when it falls. We don't see a a blood weasel come out of his head, but it's <laughs> it's very evident that this was a creature of dark magic sent by the beast. So... Uh oh, we're down a seer, and now it isn't going to do any good to go to these three trees in the swamp because we don't have a seer that can, I don't know, look at the trees and, and figure out where the fortress is. So we have to go somewhere else. And Yinir has an idea, right? Yinir's like, I know, the widow of the web, but she can tell us where the fortress is. Yeah. And this uh, this becomes even more complicated because it's revealed that this is sort this is Yinir's ex as well. So mm-hmm. he has a, they have a lot of history, there's a lot of baggage here. Uh, but also it's it, it makes it maybe a bit more possible as a solution because he, he has some sort of connection here. Uh, they're not going to just show up and be consumed by a monster. 
Right. Oh, and we should mention on the way, uh, I think it's before we get to here that, uh, there's a, there's like a sweet interaction where the kid who was with the seer has been talking about how, if he could have, if he could only have one wish, he would want a puppy. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, ergo the, the selfish incompetent magician, uh, transforms himself into a puppy for the kid. Oh yeah. This was great. This yeah. Because it's a very cute, like basset hound puppy. It's, it's, yeah. it's adorable. And it's a much better, there's some wonderful clumsy moment earlier where the seer is clearly dead because we just saw the crumpled body, uh, of the, the doppelganger. And then the whole party comes around and the kid is like, he was my only family. And then, uh, uh, Cowan turns to him and says, we're your family now. And that's, <laughs> it. that's the, that's, that's, that's the, the entirety of, of their um, of their grief counseling here, so at least at least we we have a, a puppy uh, that is uh, at least one of the characters turns himself into a puppy and lets the kid carry the puppy. Earlier, their re- uh, interaction, the kid had said, "If he could have uh, one wish, he would want a puppy." And Ergo is like, "Why? Oh, that you're messing up. Why one puppy when you could wish for a hundred? And the kid <laughs> says, "I only want one." And Ergo just thinks this is stupid. Yeah. I, I like that too. That's another one of these nice character uh, interaction scenes. Uh, but anyway, on to the widow of the web. So uh, Yinir has to go on by himself because if more than one person approaches, the the widow of the web will kill them all immediately. But if he goes alone, he might have a chance. And so everybody else hangs back behind. And this is where we get some nice conversation where like Liam Neeson explains about his 14 wives <laughs> uh, and uh, some locals. come. Where, where did these like women come from when – we we see them hanging out with the the bandits. It's just one of those scenes where suddenly there are more people around, and at first you're like, "Oh, this party's bigger than I thought it was," and then you're like, "Oh no, this these are different people that like the people of the forest that they're they're hanging out with and getting a um, you know a full rest so they can restore all their spell slots for the uh, encounters ahead." Right, and so but it, it, oh, meanwhile at the fortress, uh, we get some interactions with the beast and the princess, and the beast is like, "Be my wife," yes. and the princess is like, "I don't want to." And he's like, let me show you what your prince is doing. And so he pulls up a TV screen pretty much uh, for her to watch Colwyn here being seduced by a changeling who's pretending to be a woman here. Mm-hmm. And uh, she, I think she's supposed to like make Colwyn look bad while the princess is watching uh, and then kill him. Uh, but instead she's like, you know, Oh, let me comfort you. And he's like, I, I will not accept comfort. And so he proves his virtue. He proves his faithfulness while the princess is watching him on TV. And then, uh, and then it, it, he's so good. The changeling is like, okay, well I have to kill you now, but she's like, but you're so nice. I can't do it. And so, <laughs> I mean, what more could you ask for? What a, what a, what a stand up guy. Yeah, this is a very confusing scene. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a lot going on here. Uh, but anyway, the princess is like, "See, see how good my 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 husband is." Uh, now that's an additional reason why I'm not going to marry the beast. <laughs> uh, but okay, so Yinir has to go talk to the widow of the web, who is like a sorceress who is trapped in a. Uh, sphere in the middle of a giant cave surrounded by spider webs because there's a giant spider that lives in the cave. And as he approaches and tries to get to the sphere, the spider attacks, but he, he manages to make it through. And then he talks to the enchantress and they have a history together. Yeah. And there's, well, they talk about it for a while. There's a, there are a lot yeah. of ins and outs, a lot of tragedies. There's a, uh, a deceased son in the mix. Like it's a lot. 
And I, every time I watch it, I'm left not really having a full idea of exactly yeah. what their personal history is. But it's well, it's well acted, so I'm buying that the history is there and that uh, they reach some sort of decision here. And it involves a magic hourglass, and he's given the sand from the hourglass, and this somehow helps him get back across the web, and there's that big stop-motion spider. Uh, I, I think the deal is this. The spider would kill him as he was. So she is able to use her magic to tell him where the the fortress is going to be, but he can't get back out to the mouth of the cave without the spider killing him. So she's like, I know uh, if you, if you carry the sand from my hourglass in your hand, then the spider can't hurt you. But as soon as the sand falls out of your hand, you will die. Uh, so he's like, okay. So she breaks the hourglass. I think that kills her or dooms her in some way. And he gets the sand. He leaves. He makes it out. And then he tells, he gets back to his friends. He's like, the Black Fortress is in the desert. And then the sand pours out of his hand. And they're like, oh, no, the desert. And he's dead. It's a good ride, though. Good good death. Uh, but there's a problem because like, how are we going to get to the desert? That's very far away. And I think it's the Cyclops that suggests, you know what we need? We need us some fire mares. Yes, fire mares are the answer. So we've we've reached the part of the film here that um, uh, th- that was my wife's favorite part of the film growing up. She grew up as a as a horse enthusiast, and so I think a lot of horse enthusiasts and 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 viewers who were into horses when they were young like this is their favorite part because we have when they finally find these these fire mares these are played by Clydesdales. They are some truly beautiful horses. Uh, it's it's hard not to, uh, to 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 get pulled in. Uh, by their 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 equine majesty. Yeah, and they literally like their hooves are on fire while they gallop yeah. through the sky. But they take them to the fortress. The cyclops stays behind because he's like, "No, it's my time now. I have to stay here and die." And so they go off to the fortress and they assault it. They they start climbing up the sides of the beast's fortress and it kind of reminded me of the attack on the Riddler's Island at the end of Batman Forever, which I watched recently for an episode I did uh, of uh, Seth's music podcast, Rusty Needles Record Club, which you, if you haven't checked that out, give it a listen. Well, it's um, been a long because, time since I've seen Batman Forever, so you're going to have to describe the attack well, on Riddler's Island. Uh, we were talking about because we were talking about the Batman Forever soundtrack. Mm. But uh, yes, uh, Riddler's Island in the end of this movie, Jim Carrey and Tommy Lee Jones are hanging out on essentially an island that is also the aggro crag from Guts. And uh, Batman and Robin uh, attack it by sea and by air. And eventually they just end up climbing up some very fake looking rocks. And that's what this assault is like they're climbing up some fake looking rocks while the slayers shoot lasers at them and they're stuck they're like oh what are we going to do they're shooting lasers at us it's not like they've been doing that the whole movie uh but you know (laughs) they don't know how they're going to get past the lasers and then they're saved by the cyclops uh going back on his word showing up on a fire mare and saying i'll i'll run up there and and he does yeah, it's, this is another part where I have to think about the nature of the the beast power structure. So, since the I guess since the the the, the castle, the fortress here, since it teleports regularly, they never oh. have to really invest too much in the defense of the fortress because they're only going to be there a short amount of time. Nobody's going to be able to uh, mount anything more than a quick rushed uh, assault on the fortress. Uh, but still, they. 
they 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 have the laser gun, so they're they're pretty uh, adequate at defending it. Yes, but with the help of the mighty Cyclops, they make their way in. And then uh, his real death, unlike what he predicted earlier, is that, like you said, he's holding a couple of rocks apart until all of Colwyn's guys get through, and then he just sort of gives up and lets the rocks squash him. Yeah. But okay, so Colwyn and Torkoal's bandits and um, a couple of other other people in the party, ergo, and there's a lot of people, the kid, they all fight, they fight their way into the fortress inside. It's like a giant cave. It's got this big alien mucus bridge. They get sniped at by slayers. Liam Neeson has a death scene where, you know, he, I really wish his last line had been like, tell my eight wives. I didn't care about them, <laughs> uh, but I, I don't know. He says something else and then he, he dies on the floor. I like the detail that the slayers on the outside of the of the castle, the ones that go out in the field and battle, they have dark armor. But the ones on the inside of the castle, they have white armor. They're kind of mm. like stormtrooper slayers. So uh, it's, it's, it's a nice little tweaking of the design. So there's a part where in the castle, Colwyn and the bandits come to a dead end. They're, they come up against like a dome that they can't get through. And they know the princess is in there, but they think there's no way in until Colwyn goes, there is one way. <laughs> <laughs> and what do you what's it gonna be it's it's glaven time it is glaven time uh he so the glaive turns into a floating flying circular saw and it cuts a hole in the wall of the princess's prison cell but very slowly giving us plenty of time meanwhile for the the bandits to get trapped in another room and a spike death for one of them named bardolph like spikes come out of the walls and start stabbing at them uh, but finally, the glaive cuts through the wall, and then there's a reunion. You know, the prince and the princess are together again. They embrace, and oh, it's so great. Uh, and Colwyn's ready to fight, but she... Uh, could you explain what this meant? She goes, you can't fight the beast here. You must fight him away from the center. I don't know what that means. I don't know either. They just... It's like you've got to fight him in another location. And so yeah. they, they do. And... Yeah, the final battle ensues. And I have to say, this the final battle has some real issues. So yeah, this not not very good. Yeah. The the beast design, the the creature design seems great. Uh they don't show a lot of it, so, so maybe it wasn't that great, who knows? But uh from what we see of it, it looks pretty cool. It's this big, you know, black alien costume, uh this horrible mouth, big red eyes, weird tubes, the the six fingers on the hand. I think the big problem is though that the beast is like thirty feet tall instead of a respectable seven. So yeah. it ends up feeling like our hero Colin is fighting a drive-in movie theater projection. Yes. We never feel like the Beast occupies the same physical space with any other character in the film, at least not in his full-blown Beast mode, uh, his Beast form, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, So we end up with these, the whole battle is just kind of a battle of psychic and magical projectiles. Glaive is flying through the air. Beast is breathing fireballs or something. And, um, you know, it, it just doesn't feel like a battle. It doesn't have, it does. I don't feel the stakes at all here. You know, but I always say a good fight scene needs, you know, it needs beats. It needs drama. It needs twists. And one twist here is that, uh Oh, you know, the glaive is very powerful. It's, clearly a great weapon but at some point it gets stuck in the beast uh-huh. <laughs> and we see colwyn trying to pull it out psychically he's like reaching out and going and the and the glaive will not get out of the beast's flesh so uh-oh we're really in trouble now but then lissa uh she's like colwyn it's not the glaive it's you and then oh. he says lissa it's 
us. It's us he can't defeat. Um, and uh, he and he figures out that the woman he chooses as his wife needs to give him fire that will, she says, like, take the fire from my hand. And that somehow transforms Colwyn into a pyromancer. Uh, and now he can shoot fireballs out of his hands. This would probably have been explained if we got to see the full wedding, like with the full vows, where it's <laughs> yeah, like, okay. do you promise to give your husband a magical fire that he may use against extraterrestrial threats? Uh, and you could say, I do, you know, that sort of with thing. The, yeah, with this fire that I got from my wife, I the burn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I kind of forgot about the whole thing with the fire in the ceremony we saw earlier. So even reviewing it, I'm like, what? What's this fire thing? What? This feels kind of out of left field, but I, I guess it was established. But still, it feels kind of weird and thrown on. And it's also another one of those, it turns out the weapon wasn't magic. You were the magic the whole time. The magic was love. Here's the love fire. Now go blast that beast. Can you feel the love of Krull? So at this point, they, yeah, he defeats the beast. The beast kind of blows up and stuff. And then yeah. the whole black fortress begins to fall apart. It's like any magical fortress in a film. Like the you know, stuff starts falling to pieces, kind of like the Castle of the Dark Crystal, how poor portions of it were falling apart, except this time the whole black fortress is crumbling. And then as we we were having to get all the characters together, hey, find, find uh, uh, you know, the wizard and get him up. Make sure he's not a tiger anymore. Because uh, that's the other mm-hmm. thing. You, you know, you got to pull through and change into a tiger to kill some slayers. Let's find the kid. Uh, let's see. Does, is anybody dying and need some last words? Nope. Okay, everybody's good. All right. Everybody's living. Let's leave the castle. Let's leave the Black Fortress. And then as they actually leave the Black Fortress, we do get an awesome effect. The Black Fortress is not crumbling down. It's crumbling up. And the pieces are falling up into the sky and going up into outer space. I love that. Yeah. I, I dig it. Uh, and then we get some nice happy stuff. I think Colwyn's like, "Hey, uh, Alan Armstrong, why don't why don't you be my vice president?" Yeah, <laughs> Torquil is named Hand of the King, so you know, good for Torquil. Solid get. It's a it's a very sweet and wholesome ending. Uh, and and that does it for Kroll. Will their son rule the galaxy though? Uh, it not addressed. In fact, they even remind us at the end, almost like they were not hoping we would just forget about that because the movie doesn't <laughs> deal with it. It's like, uh, and as the prophecy said, they were wed and their son would rule the galaxy. But what's in the galaxy? Do we even, we don't even see what any other planets look like. I don't know. Yeah. I guess if I'm, if I'm digging into this idea that the castle of the humans on Kroll was built by a colony bards, then maybe there are other worlds out there that for some reason, the the human colonists there decided on a medieval uh, structure to their civilization, and maybe there are multiple beast ships moving around trying to uh, to, to get them. Who knows? Saying we must prevent these uh, the beasts of people are like we must prevent these space medieval types from becoming space renaissance types or something. I don't know. The guild navigator arrives. Uh, the the representative of the Landsrad disembarks. They come out and they say, uh, "Sorry, Colwyn, Lissa, uh, you have been officially deposed by the Landsrad. This planet now belongs to the Harkonnens. Uh, too bad." Or they could go with the sort of a classic Outer Limits ending where, oh, the Beast's parents show up and uh, we realize that the Beast was just a, a child of this species and now they have to deal with the grown-ups with their full full strength. Okay, I think I can say no more about Krull. Yeah, there's nothing left to be said, but go watch it if you haven't seen it before. And if you have seen it before, well, now's a great time to go re-watch Krull. Watch it with someone you love. 
or by yourself. It's great. It's great both ways. <laughs> All right. We're going to go ahead and close out this Weird House Cinema. But yeah, we'd love to hear from everyone out there if you have memories about watching Kroll, if, if Kroll is close to your heart, uh, uh, et cetera. Share. Share your love for Kroll with us. Um, as, uh, as always, if, if you want to see some blog posts about these, these, uh, movie selections, uh, go to some mutamusic.com. I blog about them there and I include the, the video clip. I embed the, the podcast episode and so forth. And also if you use letterboxd, that's, uh, L E T T E R B O X D.com. Uh, we have a profile there, weird house. Go there. You'll find a list of all the movies we've covered on Weird House Cinema. And sometimes there's a peek ahead to what we're covering in the future. Uh, so it's a nice, like, visual way to see what we've looked at, what we've watched. And you can also uh, throw in little uh, tabulations there and, like, see them by decade. Uh, see them uh, in order that they were uh, made, that sort of thing. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your mind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com.